Good morning, everybody. So great to see everyone here today. Uh, Jeff, I couldn't help but think every time you lead us in the Lord's Supper, I think that guy missed his calling. Uh, wonderful thoughts. We very much appreciate it. I'm sure you're good at what you do, too, but, uh, but you do a great job with that, and we so much appreciate it. Good to see everyone here today, and uh, thankful that we can all come together, spend some time in worship, spend some time in fellowship and in the study of the Word of God. There really is no end to the multitude of ways that people try to discount or criticize the message of the Bible. And uh, one of the ways that uh, they like to do that among biblical skeptics uh, is to say that women in the Bible are always portrayed in a negative light. You ever heard anybody say that? Uh, Women are always portrayed in a negative light. We're told they're always prostitutes or they're scheming or they're uh, making people sin or they're, they're doing something uh, underhanded that they shouldn't do. Uh, they bring up the example of the Bible talking about Eve uh, committing the first sin and how Sarah and Hagar get into a, a spite and jealousy with one another over who can have a baby and who can't. And Bathsheba schemes about the birth of Solomon, to, or about the... Uh, succession of Solomon to David's throne and on and on and on. And others say, well, in the Bible, women are just not that important. They just really don't count. Well, that's so wrong on a lot of counts, but one is it ignores the fact that you have people with the nobility of Ruth, with the courage of Esther, and it ignores the fact that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, wisdom is personified as a woman. So it's kind of hard to really make that statement and make it stick when you really look at the, uh, the Bible itself. And the accounts of Jesus' birth in Matthew and in Luke really do blow that out of the water, especially in Luke. Now, if you read the two accounts, Matthew and Luke, these are the only two we have of the birth of Jesus, by the way, Matthew and Luke. If you read them side by side, you'll notice that the Gospel of Matthew does focus more on Joseph than it does on Mary. The angel announces the impending birth of Jesus to Joseph. Uh, the name that the baby is to be given is uh, revealed to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is told to take his family and flee to Egypt and so on and so forth. But when you get to Luke, the story is told more from the perspective of Mary. We read about the angel also coming to her and announcing to her that she will be the mother of the Son of God. We read about her thoughts that she holds deep within herself when she learns about these things. We learn about her visit to Elizabeth. In Luke, she even has a song that was read at the beginning of the service. It's usually referred to as the Magnificat from the early uh, uh, words of the, in Latin of that song. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has exalted his servant. So all of those things are given to us about Mary and the Gospel of Luke. But this is all part of Luke's interest in people who were in Jewish society typically marginalized. He pays a lot of attention to those who are ill. He pays a lot of attention to uh, those who were not Jews. He pays a lot more attention to Samaritans. That's where we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And women were considered definitely second-class citizens in ancient Judaism. 
And uh, so Luke pays a lot of attention to them. In fact, there are 13 women in the Gospel of Luke who are mentioned by name who are not even mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. 13 women called by name. Obviously, Luke wants us to know about these women. And just as Matthew tells us about the wise men coming to find the baby Jesus that we talked about last Sunday, Luke tells us about three wise women. We don't talk about them much in the context of the birth of Jesus, but that's what I want us to do this morning. Think about these three wise women in the Gospel of Luke. The first one, of course, is obviously Mary. In one sense, it's hard to think of Mary as a wise woman because she's probably a teenager. She's probably about 14 to 16 years of age because that was the typical marital age for Jewish girls. They usually were betrothed or pledged legally to an older man. Uh, he might have been in his 20s or possibly uh, even in his 30s. And so you had a lot of marriages in which you had older men married to uh, younger women. And uh, so Mary probably was in her uh, teens. Uh, we don't know Joseph's age. That's never given to us in the Bible. But if you've ever noticed, he disappears from the story of Jesus uh, after uh, the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. He's not mentioned anymore uh, following the birth narratives and then Jesus going to the temple at the age of 12. And the usual assumption is that he was an older man, older than Mary, and that he probably had died by the time Jesus reached adulthood. And so you don't read about him interacting with Jesus uh, or with anybody else uh, during the rest of the story of Jesus. Now, there's been a lot said about Mary in religious circles that the Bible simply doesn't support. Uh, one thing that's been said about her is what's called the doctrine of perpetual virginity. The idea that Mary not only was a virgin when she, uh, she was uh, when Jesus was conceived, but that she remained a virgin all her life. That's a very important doctrine in Roman Catholicism. Scripture doesn't support it at all. In fact, it contradicts it. What we were actually told in Scripture is that Mary was the mother of at least six more children after Jesus. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament says that Jesus has four brothers. Uh, and that he had sisters, we're never told how many, but he had at least two. So that's four plus two, which used to be six, and I think it still is. And uh, maybe there were more. She might have been the, the mother of eight. We don't know. But she was not a virgin all her life. The scripture never says that. In fact, if you look at Luke 2 and verse 7, uh, it refers to Jesus as her firstborn son. And that obviously implies that there were going to be secondborn and thirdborn uh, and others, so that simply is not supported in Scripture. Scripture also never says that Mary serves as any kind of intermediary between believers and God, or between believers and Jesus. We're never taught that we're supposed to pray to Mary, or that our prayers have to somehow go through Mary. We're never told that. Uh, that's something that came along much later. And she's never described as having divine qualities. Uh, as often is uh, the case in some religious circles. In fact, 30 years after where we're reading in Luke chapters 1 and 2, 30 years later, we find her exhibiting very human qualities. If you look in uh, John chapter 2, at that wedding feast in Cain of Galilee where Jesus performed his first miracle, she's the anxious mom there. Uh, they run out of wine. 
and she comes to Jesus and she says they're they're out of wine and the implication is she's trying to push him to do something she's trying to, to say here's your chance uh, we've lived with this stigma all these years of you not being who we know that you are so now's your chance to do something that will prove that uh, because she was concerned to vindicate herself as well as him also in Mark chapter 3 we find that she had doubts about Jesus' identity. Mark chapter 3. Uh, Jesus' and, uh, mother and brothers come to take charge of him, Mark says, because they were saying he's out of his mind. His mother, along with his brothers, had kind of given up on his identity and had thought that he had lost his mind and they needed to come take charge of him. Mary is not perfect. Mary's human. Mary does not have divine qualities. Scripture never tells us that. And after the story of Jesus' birth, she doesn't appear very often in the story, just a few times. And yet at the same time, she is a person who should not be ignored. She ought not to be neglected because what we do know about her shows that she is someone to be respected and someone whose example ought to be followed. She was a very wise woman. What was it that made her wise? Let me point out a couple of things to you. Number one is the most obvious one. The fact that she was a virgin when Jesus was born. She had kept herself sexually pure. Why was that important? Because she could not have been the mother of Jesus otherwise. I'm not suggesting that Mary had that in her mind that I need to maintain my sexual purity so I can give birth to the Son of God. She didn't know anything about that. But had she not kept herself pure as part of her devotion to God and part of her following of the law of her people, if she had not done that, she never would have been a candidate for this. There wouldn't have been any possibility that she could have been the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Son of God. When the angel announces to her, he says, you're going to give birth, you're going to bear a child, she said in Luke 134, how can this be since... I'm a virgin. How can this be since I have not known man? Literally is what it says. In other words, she's not been with a man sexually. How can that possibly be then that she will have a child? She was living up to the expectations and the standards of the time in which she lived, which expected sexual purity of young women. I'm sorry to say, and you know this well, that it's just the opposite today, isn't it? that there is a general cultural and societal expectation that young women and young men will not stay sexually pure. And there's very little about our culture that encourages sexual purity. In fact, there's so much about it that encourages just the opposite. It encourages promiscuity. It encourages doing whatever you want to do. It encourages satisfying your lust regardless of how you do it or with whom you do it. That's very, the very opposite of the situation in which Mary found herself as she uh, was growing up. And it's no different for young men than it is for uh, young girls. Young girls today need to follow Mary's example and relearn the value of sexual purity. And I want to speak particularly uh, at this moment to young Christian girls and as well as young Christian men. You need to learn to value sexual purity. The world's not going to do it for you. The world is not going to encourage you in it. The world is not going to say this is the expectation. The world is not going to set you the examples. You're going to have to look elsewhere for that. 
There are a lot of reasons not to be sexually active, and you know what they are. Uh, there are the specter of unwanted pregnancy and the uh, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, the hardships of being a single parent, if that turns out to be your lot, and the temptation to have an abortion, and on and on and on. But listen, for a Christian, there is one reason that outweighs them all, and that's the one that Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? That is your primary reason. That is the primary motivation of all of us for maintaining purity in our bodies. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit living within us. The moment you were baptized into Christ, His Spirit came to live within you. And so Paul adds to that statement. He says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now use your body to satisfy lust. Don't use your body in ways just because that's what those around you think you ought to do. Use your body to glorify God. That's what he gave it to you for. That's what he's given all of us our bodies for. If you're sexually active, you may find that you've complicated your life in ways that will make it difficult for you to serve the Lord in ways that you might want to later in life. It won't necessarily make it impossible. Don't, don't understand me to say that. I'm not saying it'll make it impossible but it may make it very, very difficult. Let me give you an example. Uh, you may have an unintended pregnancy that might lead you to marry somebody you otherwise wouldn't have married. It might lead you to marry somebody who's not a believer. It might need you, lead you to marry somebody who doesn't care about serving God, and you find yourself, maybe some years later, really wanting to serve God, and now you've got a barrier to doing that. Because you've got somebody with you who does not want you to do that. And you have to work around that. Don't put yourself in that situation. Keep yourself sexually pure. If you are serious about serving the Lord, then keep yourself sexually pure so there are no unnecessary hindrances. And you, like Mary, will be ready for duty when he calls. You'll be ready for whatever it is that God opens up to you in the future. And you don't know what that is now. I often think when I look back at the time that I was baptized at the age of 18, uh, I had no idea what God had in mind for me. I had no idea what life was going to hold for me. And, and if you're a young teenager, particularly right now, a uh, teenage Christian, you don't have any idea what the Lord has ahead of you. All you can do is say, I know that my life belongs to God and I'm going to devote it to him. And I'm going to do everything that I can to keep my life free from any hindrances that would prevent me from doing that. I'm going to keep myself focused on God. I'm going to keep myself focused on Jesus. I'm going to strive to do what the Lord would have me to do. That's the way to live your life. And then see what God has in store for you, and you'll be ready for it when it comes. But here's another reason Mary was a wise woman, because she had a servant's heart. She had a servant's heart. Imagine a 14 to 16-year-old girl learning that she's going to become pregnant and give birth to the Son of God. You know, for most uh, girls in that age, learning that you're going to become pregnant, period, is not exactly happy news. But here she is. She has not done anything she shouldn't have done. She says, I have not known a man. The Bible verifies that, testifies to that. 
And here's an angel saying, yes, but you're going to have a baby. And by the way, that baby's going to be the son of God. How would you react? How would you expect anybody else to react? You know, old Simeon that we read about a few minutes ago got it right. Luke 2, 34 and 35. When he encountered Mary and Joseph in the temple when they brought Jesus there for purification. He said to Mary, this child is appointed for the, the falling and the rising of many in Israel and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword was going to pierce through Mary's soul. I suspect that sword was thrusted through her soul many times, don't you? That sword was pierced through her soul when the people around her probably didn't believe her story about where this baby came from. That sword certainly pierced through her soul when she had to stand at the foot of the cross and watch her son die. Even though he was dying for the sins of the world. Even though he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. That sword must have pierced her soul in ways we can only imagine. But I want you to look at Mary's response. Luke 1 verse 38. When the angel tells her what's going to happen. She says, let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, whatever God wants, whatever God chooses for me, that's what I'm ready to do. And then her beautiful song, starting in chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowest state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's a teenager saying that. That's a teenager saying that. You see that even as a teen, Mary was deeply spiritual, deeply devoted to God, ready to serve him in any way that he chose. We sometimes undervalue the spirituality of teenagers, and we shouldn't. We sometimes undervalue their, their spiritual capacities, their capabilities, their, their abilities to do great things for God, both now and in the future. And we shouldn't do that. And, and if you are in that category, I hope you'll understand this morning that you are capable of more than you realize. You are capable of more than you know. You may think of yourself as just kind of sitting there until you grow up and sort of see what happens between you and God. Don't think that way. Devote yourself to God fully now. And see what God will do in your life. I can't think of a better role model for girls today. Not the pop culture icons who encourage immorality and who constantly in, in exhibit self-centeredness, but the mother of Jesus who said, I'm servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The second wise woman in the story is Elizabeth. Her story actually starts in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, when an angel appears to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, who is a priest, and tells him about the impending birth of John the Baptist. Now, then when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, the fulfillment of that promise, Mary, who we are told is a relative of hers, chapter 1, verse 36, we don't know what kind of relative, uh, but she's a relative of Elizabeth. She goes to visit her, and she stays for three months. Now, we don't know how old Elizabeth was, but chapter 1, verse 7 says that both she and Zechariah were advanced in years. 
advanced in years, and that she had always been unable to bear a child. Not just because she was old, but she'd never been able to bear a child. And now they have reached uh, the state in life where they are beyond childbearing. Uh, and so they're kind of like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, maybe not that old, uh, 190, but uh, still uh, beyond the uh, time of childbearing. And so the birth of John the Baptist is not so much a necessarily a miracle. We might want to look at it that way. It might have been. But it is certainly remarkable. It is certainly not anything that anybody would expect. But in addition to being the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth played a crucial role in an important moment in Mary's life when Mary really needed her. If you look at Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 36 to 40, uh, Mary is told about Elizabeth, your kinswoman Elizabeth is with child, and now nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible to God. Not going to be impossible for Elizabeth. It's not going to be impossible for you, Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God. And when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth says the baby leaps in her womb when she hears the, the voice of the mother of her Lord. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and then she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She told Mary over and over, you are blessed. And I just imagine this now pregnant teenager from a small village in Galilee needed to be told that. I suspect she needed to hear that. You are blessed. You see, at this moment, Mary needs a mentor. Mary needs somebody she can talk to. She needs a counselor. She needs somebody who understands that God is at work in all this because God is at work with Elizabeth too. And so Elizabeth serves that function for Mary. She probably also needed a place to get away from the wagging tongues uh, in, in her home village of Nazareth. She probably needed a place where she could think, feel safe or she could feel comfortable where she could spend those three months kind of thinking through what all was happening to her and what was going to happen to her. And so if Mary is a role model for young women, Elizabeth is certainly so for older women. She's a wise woman. She rejoices at being blessed by God, and she embraced her role in God's plan uh, for the redemption of humanity. Just think about how important John the Baptist was. Just think about him, how significant it was that she was his mother, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 3, had talked about the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That voice turns out to be none other than John, Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son. He prepares the way of the Lord. So she has a critical role in that. And she also has that wonderful opportunity to minister to Mary when Mary needed her the most. Just as I spoke a minute ago to Young women, teenage girls particularly. I want to talk now to older women. We need older women in the church who do for younger women in the church what Elizabeth was doing for Mary. Listen to what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Speaking about the older women, he says, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. 
How are the younger women supposed to learn that? The older women are supposed to teach them. The older women are supposed to hand that on, supposed to pass them down. You say, well, maybe they should have gotten that at home. Maybe they didn't have a Christian home. Maybe they didn't have that kind of role model. Maybe they did not have the kind of, of role model to follow of an older woman uh, in their life who taught them these things. We've got to be sure they have it in the church. We've got to be sure that they receive that kind of teaching, that kind of instruction in how to be a godly woman, especially in today's world. Such role models are badly needed in the church today. And Paul says it's a responsibility of all, all older Christian women. Third wise woman, a woman by the name of Anna, appears only one time in Scripture. This is it, right here in Luke chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 36 through uh, 38. Uh, she appears at the time when Jesus is taken to the temple when he's 40 days old. Law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 12 said that when a male child was 40 days old, you take it to the temple for purification. It's a time of sort of dedication of uh, the child. And when Mary and Joseph do that and they take Jesus there, they encounter two remarkable people. One is an old man by the name of Simeon. And, and Simeon encounters them. And Simeon had been promised by God that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Can you imagine what he got up thinking every morning of his life, especially as he got older? Today might be the day. Today might be the day. One of these has got to be the day because God has promised it, and I don't have that many more days left. And so one of these days he gets up and he comes to the temple, and sure enough, he, there he encounters Mary and Joseph, and he sees this baby, and he recognizes that this is Jesus, and he blessed him, and he blessed Mary, and he blessed Joseph. And then after that, they encounter Anna. Anna's called a prophetess. She's very devout. Luke says she spent all of her time in the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying. And when she saw the baby Jesus, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She saw him, she recognized who he was, what he was, and she started telling everybody about him and about what he was there to do. Now, if Mary was young and Elizabeth was advanced in years, Anna was just older. She's just pretty old. Uh, Luke says in chapter 2, verses 36, 37, that she had lived as a widow, lived with her husband for seven years, and then after the death of her husband, either one of two things, it could be translated either way, it could be that she's 84 years old or that she'd been a widow for 84 years. You get that? It could be legitimately be translated either way. She's either 84 years old now when, they encounter, when she encounters Jesus or she's been a widow for 84 years. But she's in a separate category in uh, the age bracket. Either way, she's quite elderly. But age, notice, was not a barrier to her in serving God. In fact, she used her widowhood as an opportunity to serve God even more. She used her widowhood as an opportunity to be a blessing to others and to worship and praise and pray to and fast and serve God day by day, attending the temple, doing whatever she could to bring glory and honor to God. Rather than seeing herself as someone who didn't have a use or didn't have a value, she saw herself as having a very great value 
and having an opportunity to devote herself in a fantastic way to the service of God. She never heard these words from Paul, but she exemplified them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Those of you who are younger may not appreciate those verses the way that you will at some point. But the more that you uh, age in life and you see your outer self, your body, wasting away, it's just going to break down. I hate to tell you that, but it's going to. Okay? It's kind of like when you buy a car. You know, it's all shiny and brand new, and it's got all the, uh, the extras on it, and it can do 140 miles an hour, whatever. Uh, you know, that's not going to last forever. That's not going to last forever. Neither is your body. It's going to wear out. And yet here is Paul saying our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self, that's a different story. Our inner self is being renewed every day. In that sense, believers in Christ are ageless. We are renewed day by day in our spirit. Why? Because we're headed toward that life that is life indeed. We're headed toward that life in the presence of God that will never be taken away. And so Paul says this slight momentary affliction, that's the breaking down of the body, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know what made... Anna, a wise woman, she had her hopes fixed on those things unseen. I just imagine she had a lot of friends, you know, who probably said, Anna, why do you spend all your time down there at the temple? There's a lot of other things you could be doing. Why, why are you doing it there? You know, why aren't you over at the mall? You know, why aren't you, why aren't you spending your time in, in, in other ways? Why aren't you, uh, you know, playing games? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing one thing or another? And, and Anna... Anna would just say, here's my life. My life is serving God. She had her hopes fixed on the things that were eternal, on the things that were unseen. And that makes her a great role model for all of us because that's where we're all headed. We all need to have our focus fixed on the things that are unseen, not on the things that we can see right now. So we've got three wise women. In the Gospel of Luke, you got Mary, Elizabeth, and Anna. And why are they wise? Because they are models of devotion and faithfulness and service. And folks, that's where our faith in Christ is supposed to lead us. It's not supposed to lead us simply to adore a little baby or, or to, to get warm feelings about a nice story. Because as we're going to see next week, the story's not that nice. That's not what it's all about. It's supposed to lead us to be faithful in service to a crucified and risen Lord. So as you think about these three wise women this morning, ask yourself, am I living wisely? Am I doing the wise things that they were doing? Am I devoted to God above all? Am I using my life in service to him? Because whether you're young or whether you're old, and whether you're a woman or whether you're a man. The example of these three wise women is what wisdom really looks like. Let's stand together and sing, please. <laughs>